Shalom and welcome to another in our series of podcasts from Temple Beth Am, a dynamic center for conservative Judaism in Los Angeles. This is a recording of a Shabbat teaching by Rabbi Adam Kligfeld, by Rabbi Cantor Hilary Chorney, and Rabbi Rebecca Schatz. We are going to each take a piece of Shirat Hayam that you heard uh, beautifully chanted by Rick a few moments ago, and I chose the first line, so I'm going to kick us off. If you would like to follow along, it is Exodus 15, 1, chapter 15, verse 1, and we are going to look at a commentary by the Lubavitcher Rebbe uh, on the words, Az Yashir Moshe. So as, as we know, these, these words bring in this song, and they are kind of the introduction into the song by saying, and then Moses sang, and B'nai Yisrael, U'v'nai Yisrael. So as Yashir Moshe, U'v'nai Yisrael. So the Lubavitcher Rebbe is trying to figure out why does it say B'nai Yisrael after it says Yashir Moshe? Why doesn't it just say that they all sang together? So here is his response, and then I'll, I'll give you my Torah on his response. Rabbi Eliezer interprets the Torah's description of Israel's song to say that they did not merely affirm Moses' song with a refrain, but repeated his words themselves. Each individual Jew internalized Moses' words so that they could become the expression of their own understanding and feeling. The very same words assumed hundreds of thousands of nuances of meaning as they were absorbed by each of the minds and articulated by each of the mouths of the people of Israel. Moses started them off with the first words of the song so as to stimulate their deepest experience of the miracle with the result that each of them sang the entire song on their own. To me, this brings beautiful illustration to what the Song of the Sea could have been. More of a choir than a solo performance. And not necessarily the same tune. Right? You could have the same words, but not the same tune to that song. And each person eternalized the words, what they meant to them, how they felt about them, Maybe they didn't agree with each and every word, so they put emphasis on other pieces that Moshe put emphasis on different pieces. And they were able to then share their own song. But they were singing it still all together. And when I think about this as the cacophony of sound and the way in which these people were then going through the sea, each potentially saying the same words, maybe at different paces, Maybe in different languages, maybe again to different tunes if it really was sung, but that they each were trying to share a piece of their heart and how they understood what the meaning behind the song was. Why were they singing the song? What feelings did they try to exude, they try to give to others about what this experience was like for them? So I hope that when we are able to sing together, whether or not you know the actual tune or whether or not you can sing along with us in the way that we are singing, that you always feel like you can share your own song, that you can have your own song, that the words speak to you in a way that you are able to sing your tune and to allow yourselves moments that it seems like the Israelites took to really internalize 
these words of praise, these words of history, these words of future, and be able to figure out for themselves what they were going to mean as they crossed the sea. Thanks, Rabbi Schatz. I'm going to see Yishak Ohech, mostly so that Kenji knows to turn this over to, to me uh, next. Uh, and, um, and thanks for those words of, of cohortativeness and, um, and encouraging us to sing along, even from behind our mute buttons, to figure out what these words mean to us individually and collectively. Uvene Israel. There's an image in the 12th verse of, um, of the song, Natita Yemincha Tivla Emo Aretz. You put out your Yemincha, you put your right hand out, God, like the hokey pokey. Um, God puts <laughs> out God's right hand, and Tivla uh, Emo Aretz, the earth swallows them up. That is the chariots, the enemies of the Israelites. And it makes me think of that song, you got the whole world in your hand, right? And it, it, uh, the mechilta that Rashi brings on it, the old midrash that Rashi pulls up on this verse, um, only serves to really um, underscore that, as you can see in the commentary. Rashi actually, in his commentary, he preserves it as this idea that it was like, uh, he says the parable is like a, a person who has glass vessels in their hands, that if God just tilts God's right hand, that the vessels will will shatter, will fall to the earth. But in the original, in the in at least one of the versions of the Mechilta, when you um, when you see it, it's uh, eggs, right? You can picture when you, if you were to hold eggs in your hand, I've definitely done this, right? If you were to hold an egg in your hand and tilt it just the wrong way, the egg will fall to the ground and, and shatter. That that's how God is with humanity. That he's just natita yimincha. God can just tilt God's hand and they're swallowed up by the earth. That's the power of God. And that's, that's a powerful image of God in the scene, but it feels incongruent to me with the God of the outstretched arm that I've always pictured, the God of Pesach and the God of Egypt and the God of Geulah, the God of redemption, the God that I always pictured as part of the miracle of taking us out of slavery. And that very image is redeemed for me by looking back just a few verses to verse 6, and the Mechilta itself kind of saves that concept by digging into the poetry and saying the duplicative of Yemincha there, this little miniature tik bolet, this parallelism in the sixth verse, Yemincha Adonai Nedari Bechoach, Yemincha Adonai Tiratz Oyev, is there to teach us, if you look at the second set of sources, that When Israel works in concert with God, God's left hand, which we typically associate with God being punitive towards humanity, specifically towards the Jewish people, it can turn into another yamin, into another right hand. So it's as if there are two right hands in the Egypt story. Can you see it? There are two yamins. There are two right hands. There is the right hand that crushes the enemy, and there is the right hand that reaches out to save. There is the right hand that is terrifying, that we want as the protector. And then there's the right hand that when I say, when I go to sleep at night, I place my soul in your hand. I don't want you to crush me. And so when I recite this song now, I have this in mind that if I work in concert with God in the world, that perhaps even both of these yamins can exist, that God can be powerful in both of these ways, both working with me to crush the enemies, the foes in the world who work against me, but also to be a savior, 
to be a saving power in this world and to work gently and delicately to pull me out. And both of those yumins can exist at the same time. Two right hands. Rabbi Clegfeld. And now for something completely different. Rabbi Turner, Rabbi Schatz. We intentionally chose to teach three little nuggets today that we're not specifically following one after the other, but three different things that we were thinking about as we uh, perused the Shiratayam. And what I was perusing in Shiratayam was right after Shiratayam. Um, remind me, Rabbi Chorney, those, the, they have the text sheet in front of them, or at least theoretically do. We were able to get yeah. that out? Okay. Yeah. So um, if you go down to the, um, uh, right after the Rashi that Rabbi Chorney quoted, there is a one-line scene. It's one sentence in the Torah. That is a beautiful scene. It's a scene I'd like to have lived through. That right after the chaos and the fear and ultimately the triumph of the song by the sea, and right before they head into the wilderness of Sin and they experience hunger and thirst and ache to be back in Egypt, for one verse, the Jewish people are at peace. Chapter 15 of the book of Shemot, verse 27, Vayavo'u Elima, they came to a place called Elim, Visham, and there, there were 12 springs of water, and 70 date palms, they encamped there on the water. They were in the Caribbean. They were in Tahiti. They were in serenity. I did a meditation based on this on Wednesday. What does it mean to have them experience a fullness that all their needs were being, being taken care of so soon after none of their needs were being taken care of and so soon before they're going to be so vulnerable again relying on a different master a god hopefully a benevolent one but still extremely vulnerable to whether or not god was going to provide on that line um, Rabbi Ovadia Sforno, a 15th century Italian commentator, says something, and I'm going to tell you the first time I read it, before I read his proof text, I did not understand the direction he was going in. In fact, I thought he was going in the entire opposite direction, which says something about my psycho-spiritual bearing and might be different than his. So what does he say? He says five words. Ve'im kolze, and with all that, with all of that beautiful source of water and Shade and sweet fruit by the with the date palms, vayisu me'ilim. By the next verse, Sforno says they had left Elim. If you stop there, which the first time I read, it, I did. I did not read his proof text. Here's what I thought he was saying. I thought he was critiquing the Israelites. I thought he was saying it somewhat sardonically. The im and despite all of that perfection they were experiencing in Elim, vayisu me'ilim. They left there? Question mark exclamation point. We'll get back to that in a second. That's actually decidedly not what he was saying. And the way you know that is because of his proof text. Sometimes what text a rabbi brings to prove his point makes it very clear the point they're trying to make. So what does he say next? El mi barsin, into the, into the um, wilderness of sin. Ki'inyan. This is like what thing? This is like, quote, Lechtech acharai bamidbar. You followed after me in the desert. That is three words of a quote from the second chapter of Jeremiah, verse 2. It's a beautiful song as well. Haloch v'karat Jeremiah says that God is saying, go call this out to all of the ears of Jerusalem. At the time, Jerusalem was a sinful city. 
and were rebelling against God. That's why they were about to be destroyed, according to that theology. Lamor, what should you say to them? Ko amar Adonai. This is what God says, kind of um, nostalgically. Zacharti la chesed I, oh, do I remember the mercy of you when you people were young, when you loved me. Ahavat klulotayich. The love of our nuptials at Sinai. Boy, were we in love with each other. Not only did you love me, you followed after me in the desert. In a land that was not seated. Sforno, quoting this line, says that Sforno thinks what's happening in the scene is what faith they exemplified. They had it perfect in Elim. And they chose to go into a barren wilderness. Ah, that's a people who has faith in God. And Sforno says it admiringly. It's one thing to surrender Egypt for God, but to surrender Tahiti for God, that exemplifies the type of belief in the spiritual relationship they wanted to have with the creator of the universe, and we ought to emulate that. I can dive into that a bit, but I want to resurrect also what I thought Sforno said, and what I would also say on this verse. This is my commentary on Sforno or my commentary on the verse or maybe it's even my commentary on myself. We are always looking for a greater oasis. We're always imagining that whatever we have, it could be better. And on some level that's true and on some level it is not. And part of me wants to say to the Israelites, even those on the way to the promised land, you had something wonderful in Elim. And part of what it means to live in this short mortal world is to know you are in Elim when you are there and to be willing to surrender some of your drive to promised lands that are sometimes illusory in relationships, in professional settings, in your own spiritual growth. Sometimes exactly where you are has 12 springs of water and 70 date palms. And stay a while. And stay long enough to even make it more of an Aileen than it is right now. To make it the oasis that you deserve to be in. And I believe we ought to live in that tension all the time. Searching for vistas that will be better situations for ourselves and certainly for our society, and also being able to claim now as beautiful, now's imperfection as somewhat perfect, this moment's complicated reality as something we're going to embrace with our full heart as if we are in Elim. Our world is not in Elim right now on any level. It doesn't mean we can't claim this Shabbat as an Elim and stay there and enjoy it and bless it because we don't know that tomorrow will be better. Therefore, we should live as fully as we possibly can today. Shabbat Shalom. You have been listening to another in our series of podcasts from Temple Beth Am, a dynamic center for conservative Judaism in Los Angeles. If you enjoy these podcasts, we invite you to write a review on the Apple Podcast site or wherever you get your podcasts. For more information about Temple Beth Am Los Angeles, go to tbala.org.